Assalamu alaikum rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Today's podcast is brought to you by IslamicLens.com, a website devoted to addressing a wide range of critical issues. Because whether you're aware of this or not, the Muslims today as a whole are suffering from a massive intellectual void. So this website is an attempt to chip away at this void idea by idea. All right, let's first begin by defining what a miracle is. So when I type in miracle into Google, I get three definitions. Number one, a highly improbable or extraordinary event, development, or accomplishment that brings a very welcome consequence, such as, quote, it was a miracle that more people didn't get hurt in that car accident. This, I would call just a coincidence. This is not what we're talking about today. The second definition they present is, quote, an amazing product or achievement or an outstanding example of something great. For instance, the machine, the machine that he built with such a miracle of design. Again, this is I would call this just amazing, but it's not a miracle. It's not what we're talking about today. But the third definition is, is getting close. This is one I want to zone in on. It says, quote, an extraordinary event that is not understandable by natural or a scientific law and is therefore therefore considered to be the work of a divine agency. In other words, it is something that the human mind cannot achieve with the use of their own faculty. This definition is good, but in my opinion, it's missing something. It's incomplete. For example, what if I was to say to you that I saw the image of the word Allah in the clouds? Well, the word Allah in the clouds, from my average perspective, would seem amazing. And perhaps from my, again, average perspective would seem miraculous. But what's missing is the validation. We need the expert in that particular field of whatever it is I'm calling a miracle to come in and exhaust all his intellectual ability, all his intellectual efforts in order to validate whether or not this effect that cannot be explained by my average eye is within the sphere of human understanding. That's what's missing. So back to our cloud example, what needs to happen in this example is a group of independent meteorologists or a group of, uh, I believe it's called nephrophologists. I think that's the word for a cloud uh, scientist. They would come in, they would do their measuring and their whatever it is they do, again, in their expertise and in their field. And they would either confirm or debunk whether or not a miracle actually did take place in the clouds. Therefore, I contend it's very important that a miracle has two things in order to be called a miracle. Number one, I'm going to just rehash it, something that is not understandable by a scientific or natural law, as stated already. And number two, it's validated by experts. But before we apply this proper definition of miracle to Quran, let's first take a logical look at other well-documented miracles on history to build a uh, frame of reference. Let's first take a look at the story of Prophet Musa a.s. Now, this podcast is not a talk about the stories of the prophets, but I will rehash some important points of their life just so we remember some details. As we know, when Musa was a baby, his biological mother pulled him in a basket to float down the river to protect the baby from being killed. And as we know, the baby was found by the Pharaoh's wife, and she asked the Pharaoh to accept this baby as his own son, which he in turn did. So Musa was raised and loved by the Pharaoh to his adulthood. And during his adulthood, an incident happened where Musa had to leave the capital. And it was during this time that he left the capital that he was given the gift of prophethood. And his first mission Given to all, given to him by Allah was to go back to the capital and to give the Pharaoh a simple message that there's only one God and that he, the Pharaoh, is not it. Because the Pharaoh, of course, used to claim that he's the God. Now, why do I mention Musa's pre-prophethood upbringing? Because Allah in his infinite wisdom never gave the people a stranger as a prophet. For example, what if I was to go to a local university in the area and I just randomly pick a classroom and walk in? A bunch of strangers to me. 
And I say to these strangers, hey, uh, my name is so-and-so. I got a message. I'm a prophet. 100%. They'll look at me like I'm a crazy person. Then they would call security, especially if I had a long beard, let's be honest. And they would just kick me off campus, plain and simple. But if I go to my close friends, my close family, and I told them the same thing, they would still look at me a little crazy. They would say, you know, is this guy doing drugs? But they would at least listen to me because they trust me because I've earned that from them. And then their human curiosity would kick in and they would say to me, well, all the respect, we don't understand what you're saying, but prove it. And that's exactly what happened to Prophet Musa when he came back to the capital, back to the quote-unquote palace, wherever the, wherever the pharaoh was staying. The guards didn't stop him at the gate. They let him right in because they knew him. He grew up there. And likewise, when Musa made it through the palace to the pharaoh's quarters, the pharaoh didn't summon the guards to remove him because, again, he knew him and he trusted him. And finally, when Musa gave the message, the message of Allah to the pharaoh, the pharaoh didn't like the message, but at least he didn't reject him. He just said to him, I don't believe you. Then Musa Islam, and I quote from the Quran in English, I'll paraphrase, said, quote, Even if I bring you something manifest and convincing, the Pharaoh then said, Bring it forth then if you are truthful. In other words, the Pharaoh said, Prove it. And what miracle did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give Musa Islam? The miracle of magic, or I should I say real magic. Why? Because during Prophet Musa's time, magic was a big deal. Good magicians not only made money, but they also gained massive influence in the society, especially with the pharaoh. His aides and advisors were magicians. So when the pharaoh said, prove it, what did Musa Islam do? He dropped his wooden staff on the floor, as we know, and it turned into a big snake by Allah's will. Then a week or so later, the pharaoh summoned all the city's great magicians to challenge Prophet Musa Islam in hopes of embarrassing and discrediting him in a publicly held duel in front of all the people in the capital. Then during the duel, Musa Islam insisted that the mighty magicians go first. And as we know, one by one, the magicians then, they threw a stick, a stick on the floor and they made the optical illusion of, a, of, a, of the stick turning to a snake. Musa then, of course, threw his staff on the floor and again it turned into a big serpent. And here's the important part. Musa's stick, as we know, ate the other fake snakes. Now, why is this part of them especially important? Because to the average people watching the duel, they simply cheered. They just clapped because to them it was just more really cool magic, something they've never seen before. But again, similar to what they've seen before. But to the expert, to the magicians in the duel, they knew 100% what they just witnessed was not simply better magic. To them... This was a miraculous event. That's why they were the first to bow down to Musa's God and repeat Prophet Musa message. Even after the Pharaoh threatened to cut off their hands and legs, they still bowed down and repeated Prophet Musa message because they knew what they saw was a miracle. In other words, they validated the miracle. Alright, let us keep building the frame of reference and we'll look at another great messenger and prophet, Prophet Isa. First and foremost, let us establish the setting back then. It's an important fact that during Prophet Isa's time, the society as a whole was drowning in all types of diseases. Many people were suffering from leprosy, blindness, paralysis, etc. As a result, the affluent people of that society, the rich people of influence during those times, were the doctors, or a more proper term for those days would be the quote-unquote healers. Second of all, just like Prophet Musa Prophet Isa was not a stranger to his people. He was born amongst his people, he grew up with his people, he worked with his people, he lived with his people, etc. In other words, they knew him and they trusted him. Therefore, when Allah gave him the message to give to the people, the initial people didn't outright reject him. Just like the Pharaoh said to Musa, they, the people said, prove it. So how did he, 
Prophet Isa prove his message, Allah gave him the miracle of healing. Again, a miracle to match the reality of those times. And his miracle trumped and astonished the healers. In other words, his miracle trumped the elite. But again, to the average Joe, he initially looked just like a better doctor, like the best doctor ever. They didn't see his proof yet as a miracle. But the doctors knew. They knew that it's impossible to cure a blind man with just touching him or to cure leprosy with just touching someone. They, the experts, validated Prophet Isa's miracle. All right, let's now take this definition and a frame of reference and we'll jump ahead to Prophet Muhammad's time, alayhislam. Overall, the Arabs back then were a backward tribal people, but the two things they were very good at were trading and language. So during this time, there were two ways to become part of the elite of society. One way was to become a successful merchant because Arabia was this massive desert that connected the Persian Empire to the east with the Roman Empire to the west, and nobody wanted to cross that crazy desert, so they would essentially use the Arabs to trade with. But the other way to become part of the elite was to become a skilled poet. Why? Because 7th century Arabs back then were true masters of Arabic language. Not like today where Arabic language is extremely watered down and broken up into several dialects, back then they were very serious about language and they preserved it. So much so that when two rival tribes had a dispute, instead of fighting it out, they would essentially have a quote-unquote rap battle with poetry. It's kind of interesting. Now as far as Prophet Muhammad goes, Again, the Almighty Allah did not give the people a prophet that was a stranger. Muhammad, before he was a prophet, was born amongst them. He grew up with them. He worked with them. He married with them, etc. So when he was granted the honor of being Allah's last and final prophet and messenger, the people did not outright reject him like a crazy person. No, just like previous examples, they said, prove it. What did he do? He didn't throw his uh, staff on the floor and made it into a snake. He didn't build an ark. He didn't heal the sick in Mecca with his touch. No, the, the miracle again that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him reflected the reality of those times just like previous prophets. So what did Allah give him? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him Quran to recite. Thus, he gave the people's ears an intellectual and linguistic miracle. Now first and foremost, anybody who knew Prophet Muhammad was extremely shocked by these first verses of Quran that came from Prophet Muhammad's mouth. Why? Because Muhammad could not read or write. But besides this fact, the average Joe, the average Arab, if you will, still didn't fully grasp the true extent of the linguistic miracle they were hearing. To them, it was just more amazing high-level poetry from a man who just strangely enough yesterday could not read or write again. But eventually, the verses of Quran made their way to the ears of the poetic experts of the Meccan society, and it was they who eventually validated the miracle. They knew when they heard these verses that they were they were just too perfect, too beautiful, too uh, eloquent, too different, and too packed with layers upon layers of ideas in such a short amount of words, almost as if as almost as if uh, constructed from something other than a human. In other words, they validated the miracle. There are many examples of these language experts back then saying this thought publicly, but the best example, in my opinion, is that of our second Khalifa Umar. May Allah be pleased with him. The story how he became Muslim is quite interesting and it definitely proves my point. I'll just rehash the story real fast for those who don't know. Before he was a Muslim, he at one point became just sick and tired of hearing about how Muhammad was infecting, his opinion of course, the people of Mecca with his quote-unquote Islam. So he decided the best thing to do is just go to the source and straight up kill Muhammad. As he was marching over to where the Prophet was staying, he ran across this man that he knew, who secretly became Muslim, but he didn't tell Umar, of course. And the man and Umar had a dialogue, and the man saw that Umar was angry, so, so he asked Umar, where are you headed? Umar then said straight up, he didn't try to hide it, I'm going to kill Muhammad because I'm sick of what he's doing to our society. 
The man then told Umar, with all due respect, why don't you go clean your house up first before you go take care of Muhammad. Now, of course, the man was trying to protect Prophet Muhammad. He wanted to deflect Umar's anger away from the Prophet and direct it somewhere else. That's why he technically threw Umar's sister under the bus. Why? Because she also became a Muslim in secret. So Umar, when he heard his sister became Muslim, he went crazy, even more so. So he turned around and marched over to where his sister was staying. When Umar got to his sister's house, he walked in and he found his sister and her husband reading Quran, Surah Al-Taha to be exact. He then got more enraged and he started beating up her husband. His sister then got between the two men and he ended up striking his sister. And this strike caused her face to start bleeding. When Umar saw the blood on her face, he then paused and stopped his madness because he started to feel guilty for hurting her. And we know this story is 100% true because he was narrated by Umar himself after he became Muslim. He told us the details. Now after he calmed down, he then told his sister, fine, let me see what you're reading. Let me see what all this craziness is about. And he paused and he started to read Surah Tataha. And after reading the Surah, he thought deeply about it. And then again, he left his sister's house and started to march over to, the, to where the Prophet was staying. But instead of going to kill him this time, he went to become Muslim too. Why? Because his mind and his expertise knew this was a miracle. But one thing that has to be said about this miracle, unlike previous miracles, is that this miracle didn't leave us when the prophets left us. For example, Prophet Musa is not here today to turn his stick into a serpent. Or Prophet Isa is not here today to cure the sick with his touch. But the linguistic miracle of Quran is still here. It's been 1400 plus years since Prophet Muhammad left us, and still the Quran is here in the minds of millions upon millions of people, still here to be continually validated which in my opinion makes total sense, because since Prophet Muhammad is the last and final messenger for mankind, thus the message and the miracle that came had to be something that would last the test of time. That being said, let's recap and revisit the original question, why the Quran is a miracle. Alright, for starters, the Quran was revealed in standard Arabic language, using the same 28 letters that exist then, that still exist today. But it combined words with these letters in such a way that no human mind has ever been able to replicate its eloquence or unique form. Plain and simple, it's just too high level for the human mind. And it's not just Muslims throughout history that say this, because you might say, well, obviously they're biased. I mean, they're already Muslim. Many non-Muslims have also said this. Of course, these non-Muslims don't go as far as to say the Quran is a work of a higher entity like God or Allah. Instead, they say things like the following. Take, for example, Martin Zamet in his book titled A Comparative Lexical Study of Chronic Arabic. On page 37 of his book, he writes, I'm going to read it here, quote, Notwithstanding the literally excellence of some of the long pre-Islamic poems, the Quran is definitely on a level of its own as the most eminent written manifestation of the Arabic language, end quote. Or here's another example. In a book titled The Quran of the Modern Science, author Maurice Bukai, on page 18, he writes, there's a long quote, bear with me, Quote, in making the present attempt to improve on the performance of the predecessors and to produce something which might be accepted as echoing, however faintly, the sublime rhetoric of Arabic Quran, I have been at pain to study the, the intricate and richly varied rhythms which, apart from the message itself, constitutes the Quran's undeniable claim to rank among the greatest literary masterpieces of mankind, end quote. After hearing these quotes, and there's others like these people, you might say to yourself, why don't these people accept Islam with such high praise for the Quran? How can they not turn and become Muslim? Well, my answer is simple. 
best way to put it is think about Prophet Isa I mean, in front of people, he brought a dead bird to life. And later on in time, he brought a dead person to life, literally a dead person to life. And still, the people around him, many of them did not accept his message. So quite frankly, I cannot answer that question. But it doesn't take away from their expertise or their validity. But the same thing can be said about Muslims who validate the miracle, linguistic miracle of Quran. Does that automatically mean they're going to be amazing Muslims? No. Recognizing the miracle is one step. The hard part, that's actually the easy step. The hard part is then opening the book and incorporating its rules and regulations into your life. That's really the true test for mankind. All right. My goal today was to convey three main points. Number one. We should always go back to basics and remember that Allah the Almighty created the universe and everything inside of it. Then at one point in time, Allah decided to create us, the first and only sentient beings on earth. Beings that have intellect, we have feelings, the ability to exercise reason and logic. We, uh, we understand compassion and suffering. And most importantly, we are the only creation that has free will or the ability to control our actions through our thoughts. Then Allah decided to make us, after He made us, He decided to communicate with us, to communicate with His creation. In other words, He didn't just make us turn our brains on and dump us on this earth to roam free, despite what Western education tells you. That's crazy. No, Allah decided to communicate to us. And how? From within us, by sending us a human prophet, one after the other. But the only way for this person to validate that he indeed was a prophet was through the miraculous proof or the power that Allah gave them to show us and to convince our intellect. Point number two, as the human mind evolved and became more sophisticated, so did the message from Allah. Over time, the message became more detailed and more robust, meaning more rules and guidelines for mankind. And the culmination of Allah's message ended with Prophet Muhammad That's why he is the last and final messenger again. And the Quran is the last and final book of guidelines for mankind. Makes perfect sense to me. That's also why the Quran is a comprehensive message. Its verses lay out rules for everything since it's going to be the last and final message. Rules from economics to spirituality to inheritance, uh, human and human relationships, how country to country for a policy should function, rules of hunting, governmental rules, how to view the hereafter. I mean, my God, I can go on and on. There's literally rules for everything. Allah did not leave us here and just make us and dump us. He gave us rules and regulations. And finally, point number three, the content of the Quran. The actual rules and guidelines themselves, when studied properly, and I emphasize again, when studied properly, are amazing in of themselves. Many people have come to Islam simply because of the wisdom that the Quran holds for mankind. The Quran has even amazing historical lessons for mankind, and even more amazing scientific predictions contained in its verses. But that's not why it's a miracle. What blew away the 7th century Arab language experts back then, and it's still blown away current Arabic, Arabic language experts, is the linguistic composition of the Quran. This is why it's a miracle, and it's crucial that we Muslims remember and teach this to our children. Alright, in conclusion, I just want to simply say that this podcast today was just an intro into why the Quran is a miracle. There are other arguments and other ways to also prove this point that I did not cover today. Um, in other words, this podcast was designed just to kind of wet your whistle, as they say. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.